listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. We're your hosts, Jessica and Caroline, and today we're bringing you an episode with Nick Donahue. Nick went from teacher to trainer to deputy commissioner, then commissioner in New Hampshire. A dozen years ago, Nick took over at the Nellie May Education Foundation, where he developed a strategy focused on student-centered learning. The team's focused on personalized learning, student agency, progress on mastery, and anytime, anywhere learning was about 10 years ahead of the sector. That's right. And now the foundation is leading again. In January, they announced a new strategy that recognizes that racism in many forms, personal, institutional, and structural, is a big part of the education problem. Let's listen in as Nick talks to Tom about the implications for New England schools and communities of a renewed focus on race equity. Nick will start off by recalling his youth, where he was familiar with wealth but was living in poverty. So when I I was born into a family with uh, great means or significant means, my mother had come from a Pittsburgh coal and rail family, but uh, for various reasons, she was like the last generation of any wealth. So she had inherited wealth, born into a upper class community, live in a co-op apartment on the Upper East Side of New York. And then by the time I'm seven, you know, my parents have burnt through all the money. I think I think I heard it was partly because of their uh, concern about uh, nuclear annihilation. So they were in the 60s. You know, it's not a good time to bring children to the world because we're right. all going to die. So they ran out of the money. So I'm a, I'm a wealthy class person. I'm now being raised poor. My social stream sends me to a private school because I can get in. I kind of had some fortunate moments of escape. And where'd you go to high school? I went to Trinity High School, one of the oldest schools in the country now, you know, continues to be one of the most elite. And, you know, they don't even do any fundraising with former alumni because their current the current student body represents more wealth than all the classes past. And so what was interesting about that was being in a white upper class culture, living in a more significantly Puerto Rican and Jewish immigrant neighborhood. Now I moved to the Upper West Side. And so I know how to be in the social scene because I'm raised that way, but I don't have any money. And that wasn't, you know, when I joined, when I went there in seventh grade, I was humiliated at being poor-er. And then by the time I was a senior, I was a little more indignant about it because I was a little more self-righteous about more liberal-minded social justice ideas. Anyway, so that that part of the story is, you know, living that that double life of sort of living and growing up with you know, a couple of young Puerto Rican male friends, you know, someone who don't make it through teenagehood. And I'm not, I didn't grow up in the hood. I didn't, you know, I didn't, but I, I, it was a neighborhood where, you know, you face a lot of things every day that, you know, people aren't familiar with. So anyway, it's just this dual, that, that to me was fundamental for me. It was living the kind of high end traditional education, but also, experiencing this different social situation. So that that had some roots. My parents were, you know, liberally minded and thoughtful. Uh, so there's just that dualism had something to do with, I, when I think about what has moved me to work on education and with some sort of familiar liberal social bent, you know, that's it. You ended up becoming commissioner in New Hampshire. So let's do the quick backstory yeah. of that. When. When and how did you decide on education? 
So I went to Wesleyan, another artifact of my privilege, and I ended up taking a bunch of classes. And I, beginning of junior year, I looked at my transcript and I saw that I'd taken a bunch of education classes. And I was like, oh, I think I'm interested in education. So that, you know, it wasn't a plan. It was sort of subconscious. And then I, and I had been in high school, I did a senior project of being a phys ed, you know, intern. I did an internship after my sophomore year at, back at Trinity as the first education intern. So I was attracted to young kids, basically. And then I, out of Wesleyan, went and taught elementary school or private school in, uh, in Weston, Massachusetts, another elite setting. And then found my way out of the classroom because I really discovered professional development work. I did a TV turnoff week and for my school, and then I got asked to do it in another school. It kind of brought me out of my classroom into the field. Ended up getting a job with a nonprofit in Boston. Went to work at the regional lab in Andover uh, as a state representative. And then did some consulting work for the department in New Hampshire as a staff at the at the uh, regional lab. And then, you know, part of that story is I helped the department reorganize itself around learning. And I rewrote the deputy commissioner job description. And then the current commissioner at one point said, why don't you take this job description home, you know, for the weekend? And I was like, well, I wrote it. I don't want to take it home. And she goes, well, just take it home and look at it. And I said, you know, and she goes, show it to Marianne and then come back and talk to me Monday. And I was like, oh, so I'd never been a principal. I'd never been a superintendent. Now I'm deputy commissioner. Uh, she, Betty Toomey, mentor of mine. I remember the first year I said, you know, do you think I'll ever be commissioner? I didn't really want to be. I had parking space. I, you know, I, I said for deputy, I said, you know, aside from the fact that I've never really managed anybody and I have no budget experience and I'm responsible for 300 people at a billion dollar state aid budget, you know, perfect fit for the job. And she said, I'm not hiring you because you know how to do this. I'm hiring you because I think you're smart enough to figure it out. There's no school for deputy commissioner. So it's right. really rewarding. Cut through all my fraud stuff. And then, you know, in a year I said, do you think I'll be commissioner? She said, no, you don't want to be commissioner. You're not qualified. You're not going to be commissioner. And then two years later, she announced her retirement and recommended me for the job. And I'm like, you know, what happened? She goes, you've learned a lot in context, you know. So that was a... You know, there were issues with the field, obviously, because the superintendents in New Hampshire were a little puzzled about their new commissioner. But I had built some credibility and, you know, I so it was through the consulting door. So let's uh, fast forward to the Nellie May Education Foundation. This is um, this is one of the uh, there must be like eight of these foundations that were formed out of sale of a, a bundle of student loans, so Knowledge Works and Lumina and College Spark in Washington. Helios. Helios in uh, in Arizona. Um, you joined about 12 years ago? Yes. Uh, and you had a pretty good strategic plan, but uh, by 2010, I think it was, you launched um, a super thoughtful plan focused on student-centered learning. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm just struck that you were about 10 years ahead of the sector. It's just, it's pretty remarkable that the, the way the sector has come to the plan that you developed back in like 2009. So maybe you can go back 10 years ago and talk about 
the influences that led to student-centered learning and the sort of the remarkable definition that, that you guys developed? So, you know, for better or worse, that was, you know, an idea that sort of came out of a, just some thinking I had been doing for a long time. So I'm not trying to claim credit as a sole author, but the positive and negative thing is it was an expression of some vision I had. And the negative thing is it was just an expression of vision I had. So, uh, and it wasn't surreal. There were people who, for whom it made sense. It just seemed like a logical path. If you wanted to create better outcomes, you need to modify and tailor. If you want to call and sort, provide a uniform moderated experience and see who succeeds. So uh, I don't remember all the thinking behind it, but I remember it was, it, it was actually a, a, it was an outcome of spending the previous couple of years trying to, uh, trying to insert and grow alternative programs in the current context. So th this, I remember we had experienced in New Hampshire uh, extended learning opportunities for credit. We had built in New Hampshire when I was commissioner an approach to competency-based uh, assessment out of a school-to-work move. And I think those things we tried to do in New Hampshire before 2002 right. uh, were pushed back because of No Child Left Behind. So it was like unrequited yeah, continuation. Let's, I mean, if we go... If we go all the way back, there were interesting things happening. Doc Litke is running a super progressive school in Winchester, New, New Hampshire. Hampshire, became the first school in the Coalition of Essential Schools. Ted Sizer is running a great school not far from here, the Francis Parker. Uh, so a lot of super thoughtful people about secondary education that uh, laid the groundwork for your framework here. And I wish I could say that I was attentive enough to other people's work to have made benefit of that. But again, the plus minus is sort of inside my own head. And then hearing about things that resonated versus growing off other people's ideas. And I think those examples are powerful ones and they don't really align with some of the more dramatic departures from traditional organization. I mean, I think our experience with trying to you know, press extended learning opportunities into an opening around a traditional uh, school model defined by policies that are more seat time oriented proved impossible. So that was that was actually a catalyst was moving from let's create alternative experiences inside the current frame to provide alter, you know, different modes of learning and then seeing how the current system would never allow that. And then moving to a larger system change orientation that you know, reminded people of the Senge Forrester hierarchy of you can't just stick new practices in an old structure. You can't just put new practices and new structures in with current policies. And even if you have correct policies and structures and practices, if you don't have a cultural mindset around the purpose of the system, you'll get the same results you always had. So that led us to the public work, the mindset work around um, really people reflecting on the purposes of education, which for us are, you know, that we're at a time now in our culture where it's, you know, we're one foot in uh, a system, competitive system that focuses on individual attainment and a pri as a private good versus the historic piece of education, public education in the U.S. actually being a hallowed public good. Um, and that whole set of thinking about seeing the limits of trying to crowbar the current system led to some outsized aspirations around trying to change the current system 
and make it more student-centered. Let, let me just uh, enumerate your definition of student-centered learning, because it, it turned out to be, I think, super smart. Um, even 10 years ago, you were talking about student-centered learning as including personalized, personalized learning. Uh, and for us, that means meeting the student where they are, not where we wish they were. Uh, student-owned learning. To, right. uh, a real, you, you were one of the first people to really start talking about agency. Mm-hmm. Students in the driver's seat. Competency-based learning. Mm-hmm. Move on when you know stuff. You know and, and move on when ready. And then anywhere, anytime learning. Right, which at the time, early time, was extended learning opportunities out of school physically. And then obviously the explosion of um, you know, mediated technology allowed that definition to expand. Yeah, it's really... Um, it, it is interesting how these ideas were all percolating 30 years ago, not just uh, 10 years ago. And, and uh, as you noted, how um, No Child Left Behind became unintentionally un, un, uh, uh, this radical focus on grade level proficiency. And that sort of locked in uh, teacher-centered course and grade level centered, grade centered system that in a lot of ways postponed development on on these elements. Yes, it did. And that's why having left the department, having made a start in this student centered direction, being held up by No Child Left Behind, it was a breath of fresh air at the foundation to be able to kind of exercise those muscles. So you, you now at Nellie May Education Foundation, you work across the five or six states of New England. Six New England states, yep. I've often said I, I think you're an example of a, an organization that does regional work um, but does it well enough and communicates it well enough that it's of national importance. I mean, you, you think about things in both respects. I think of both providing national leadership and doing work locally. Fair. That's, that's a explicit strategy. A, you know, a minority strategy for us is to have influence nationally. We started by saying that our national work would be in the interest of our regional success. And because of the way things turned out, you know, it had its own impact of some moderate. I'm glad to have influenced. I feel like when you look at a map of the country or the Ina Call report that des- describes growth of personalized learning, you know, New England's a heat, it's a hot spot. Right. And I like to think that it, you know, helped to model some things for yeah. people and we had something to do with that. So I want to talk about one of your grantees. I'm in town for um, the, the New England Secondary School Consortium meeting. That's a project of the Great Schools Partnership. Uh, David Roof uh, created this this nonprofit that I think has been really influential. One of the things that I appreciate about you and David is the, the sort of triangular approach to your work and that he took this vision of student-centered learning and not only created a, a network of schools, but also moved um, with policy supports a, a set of states and also built a coalition of higher ed institutions that that accepted a, a, a master of proficiency-based diploma. So it's it's difficult doing any one of those things and to do the three in concert um, is really, I think, an interesting and important example of of thoughtful work. No, I would credit Great Schools Partnership with helping to advance, you know, our early interests. I think they were the boots on the ground that 
you know, help spread things around the region. I mean, someone's got to actually do the work of helping schools, you know, implement and discover a student-centered approach. We have been able to support and sort of catalyze some things, but it doesn't happen without, you know, agents who are working with school people. And we're glad to have funded some of that. Um, and there are other entities that have, you know, grown and moved, but I think Great Schools Partnership and David have obviously been leaders in the, you know, the good position New England's in. I want to get back to the um, some communication and, and advocacy. You've supported demand development activity, both public demand and, and educator demand. Could you give us a quick summary of what you've learned about that? So what we learned and the reason we framed it that way was that, you know, in order to move on the cultural dimensions and the belief and value dimensions of systems change, uh, you know, you need, people need a reason to reconsider their set views. So we lightly tried to move in the direction of building and increasing public dissatisfaction uh, with the current mode. You know, so for example, uh, and that still plagues us today. You know, there's a report out this year, 66% of everybody thinks their young people are going to be prepared after high school for post-secondary success. And we look at a place like Boston and we think the readiness rates are in the 20s. So you need to kind of excite some dissonance for people. So we learned that you can enlist youth in youth organizing to advance student-centered learning, but they have, uh, they have precedent concerns around discipline policies, restorative justice, and uh, making sure that you know, teacher bias is addressed. So it pointed us to the sort of fundamental structural issues that were limiting the implementation of student-centered learning in a way that would be most effective for all learners. We learned that uh, when you're building public demand among policymakers, you know, we rediscovered you need the data and the information and the models. Uh, we learned, we relearned the truth of Roger's adopter curve because I'm an early adopter, borderline innovator. And uh, you can't use that same information to move public conversations for everybody. You need a broader base of information and evidence. Um, and we learned that, you you know, in terms of pushing these ideas out more broadly, that you can build a concept and you can provide people space to grow and address the concept, but they really need help in moving the concept. It's hard to get out of our own way when we're redesigning. I think that's simple. You know, there's a lot of data around what can practitioners do to build themselves a better box. It's hard to climb up over the walls and look outside the box to do that. So there's more provocative things and guidance, design thinking, some of the things that current providers are exploring um, now. Nick, I, uh, a couple of months ago, published a book on school networks and it, uh, New England is, uh, seems like an anomaly. They don't join networks in the, in the same, uh, at the same rates that we'd see in other parts of the country, both um, voluntary um you know, loose networks all the way up to tight networks. There's very few managed networks in in New England. Uh, what's that about? I think it says something about what doesn't exist in the rest of the country. So you build a network because you need a gathering spot for people with like-minded interests that don't have a place to gather. So, you know, in New Hampshire now, the state is a network. It's a growing network of people interested in students that are learning. Uh, in Vermont, they have policies around, you know, individual learning plans and personalization. 
In Connecticut, they have options around proficiency, but the Superintendent Association has been a champion of moving student-centered approaches forward. Uh, the rest, the regional education centers in New Hampshire, a couple of them are full bore on this. So they are networks that, you know, they were existing networks that, that adapted their focus. Uh, and even in Rhode Island, you know, Rhode Island claims it wants to be the first state to be uh, fully personalized. You know, it's a statement by the governor. So I think there's some homegrown uh, opportunities that really don't demand another network. And that, that's been an instruction for us because as a foundation, you know, foundations love to build their own networks and clubs. And that's the last thing that you need to do if you want to build system change is to build a, another distracting, uh, you know, fraternity or sorority when, you know, the work is system change. That means changing the existing structures and having them adapt, not exiting and finding a new oasis. So that's somehow how I think about it. Let's talk about your new strategy. Uh, you recently announced a, an interesting new strategy. Um, one of the things that you said about it is while the reasons for education inequities are many, we must realize that racism and its many renditions, personal, institutional, and structural, is part of the problem. So we'd love to dive into sort of your personal and organizational journey of the last 24 months and what what's brought this to the surface for you? You know, one of the things that brought it forward uh, are a couple of things. One, um, the evolution of our board uh, and our staff. We'd had kind of a, you know, familiar uh, mainstream uh, value around diversifying the people in our orbit, you know, and so I have now come to think about diversity as an early step uh, toward racial equity and racial justice. Uh, it's the people you gather. Uh, we started to then address the issue of participation, which is another dimension of, uh, you know, inclusion in the DEI frame, diversity, equity, inclusion. Inclusion is you actually, these people get to participate. And then we came to see, at the same time that we're exploring the sort of diversity inclusion piece, just socially as an organization, uh, we started to see the kind of outcomes of the practice development work we've been doing in districts and the, the innovations were moderated. You know, they were not necessarily driving broad-based system change. Some of the charter groups, some isolated places where people were reconsidering more fully, really deep structural changes in how they operated schools, the uh, interrogating grade level structures, uh, age-based grouping structures, assessment structures, uh, even outcome structures, uh, teaching and organization structures. So, but we weren't seeing a dramatic departure because the purposes of these systems were not driven by making sure that, uh, you know, all the students were really succeeding. And that's uh, institutional structural racism is when you don't really attend to the reality that a large portion of learners uh, who can be identified by race, zip code, class are not benefiting from an innovation. So it was an insight for us is not new. It's not you know, it's not, I'm not bragging about it, that um, in the case of trying to adopt a big innovation, a universalist approach with hopes that it would reach other people was not working and that we needed to take a tact of a more targeted approach to really privilege racial equity outcomes as a litmus test uh, and put our hopes on the fact that it would work for uh, the rest of the population. So that targeted universalism piece was a big moment for us. Um, and we think it's practical and, and you know, it's also, also socially correct. 
I want to link. Um, I want to look at a, a statement that that you released with the plan that sort of links the new strategy and the old strategy. You said we will revisit the definition of student-centered learning to put attention on racial equity outcomes and increase attention and focus on the cultural structural policies that reinforce inequities in our education system in the community. So tell me what this new focus on racial um, inequities will mean for your support for student-centered learning. How, how do these, how do you square the sort of the new plan and the old plan? Right. So there are only three big impacts for us to relate to the kind of conceptual framework around student-centered learning. And they are that uh, we had really focused on student-centered learning as an instructional package that fit inside a system. And so as it is that, the idea that you, you know, you have, you organize teacher-student activities around the four tenets you described, uh, that means interrogating them for things like uh, uh, cultural relevancy. Um, when you're organizing personalization, it means taking into account the trauma of growing up in a racist society of a, as a person of color. It means uh, accounting for uh, the kind of teacher-student relationships that need to change. So not only does it change the milieu of the instructional content, but you also, so, so we think there, that students and learning needs to evolve it through the lens I said in a targeted piece. It's like, how do we know it's really working for low-income learners of color? And if we design against that, then you start talking about cultural relevancy. You start talking about uh, uh, different ways of knowing. You start talking about uh, uh, accounting for personal experience and not ignoring the social impacts that uh, people of color in this country experience that white people, uh, you know, either forget, ignore, or just don't know about. So there's some design elements for that core piece. That's one. The second one is uh, student-centered learning through a racial equity lens obviously brings you out of the, the what is now known as the classroom, the learning engagement, and it demands that you address uh, structural issues around the nature of assessment around the uh, implicit bias that still exists in our educating te teacher force, you know, the wonderful teachers we have who are 80% white in our country. And are we really attending to the impacts of racism on them, the good people that they are? Or are we pretending like it's a universal experience, it's just the same for everybody, because it's not. So the first two dimensions are about the core instructional design. The second is that, and we talk about that sort of looking at the core piece, then there's this horizontal expansion of what student-centeredness means. Because it's not just the instructional experience, it's are the kids getting to school? How do you attend to discipline and restorative justice? Are you pushing your kids out of school or are you attracting them into school? So there are those structural issues that are broader. The third dimension that's really most impactful for us, um, well, I, what I'd say about those first two is we wanna work with the field of people who are a leading in powerful ways, the edge of personalization in our country. And we want to ask that question together. What does it mean to build a student-centered approach that we actually are fairly sure is going to work for uh, the people whose futures we depend on? Uh, and that will be an interesting experience of really privileging racial equity outcomes and saying, if you really want to guarantee an increase in equalization outcomes through the lens of race and class and difference, uh, what would you be looking at? So one specific thing is, I think uh, one of the ways that sort of our middle-class whiteness shows itself on personalization and student-centered learning is it's a supremely individual event. It's, it's based on the idea that we are free walkers in the world and we just need to be prepared a different way and we can succeed. 
and my uh, friends and allies of color and Latino and uh, uh, African-American communities have reminded me that the outcome is a more of a collective one, that for them it's a team sport and that they, we need to help them build strength and power as a community to fight the social pressures that racism still exert economically and socially in our country. So we can't just set these kids free in a walkabout. It's more of a collective effort. Um, and then, so that bridges to the third piece, which is, what's changed for us is we used to advertise opportunities for students and learning. The people who wanted to do it would tell us. We would then pick from among them unilaterally, and we would give them resources to do this. And the big shift for us is where our new focus has led us is to prioritize the voices of community leaders who represent those least heard and most harmed by the current system. And if you follow that principle, you can't force people to adopt a student-centered approach. You need to uh, engage them, negotiate. You need to have a conversation. You need to really listen to what they think the key levers are for improvement in their community. And if a student-centered future is indicated, it's less about dictating that and more about discussing that and deferring to uh, their position and interest. Uh, so we're trying to just reduce our privilege, our, you know, the way we're unilateral, the way we are uh, very, you know, we're directive. And that's because in the past, we found the people who were interested in student-centered learning and they didn't represent those communities. Our first foray 10 years ago advertised across the region, we got dozens of inquiries. We ended up orbiting on a system change framework for four communities, and they were all in the northern tier of New Hampshire. Uh, not New Hampshire. They, all, they were all in the northern tier of New England, Maine, Vermont, and New Hampshire. And that was startling to us because we'd set up conditions for system change that only small, relatively stable communities could handle. So then the real first move for us was trying to orient ourselves to the south and saying, how can we get entry into the communities where there's greater need and opportunity, we ended up offering narrower entry points around uh, mediated technology around flipped learning and uh, performance assessment. And that was really the first step towards thinking, how do we need to orient ourselves toward attending to the, the gains we could make in the communities that need student-centered learning the most, not just the ones that were kind of ready to do it uh, more moderately. It sounds like this new strategy requires um, a pretty different approach than than you described 10 years ago, kind of a new staffing model, a new investment model to some extent? Yeah, I think the biggest piece is that it demanded and has been a result of a year and a half or two years of direct inquiry around equity, around white culture, around whiteness. I mean, I'm a white middle-class man, very tr traditional in many ways. Uh, you know, I've always been a, you know, attentive liberal white person. And, you know, just examining the ways that, that again, uh, the things that get in the way of racial equity. So it's been an interesting personal journey. My board has been on this path together. Um, the diversity I described and board and staff help catalyze these conversations. So it has been a very deep organizational introspection. And the reason I focus on that is that as I get more and more inquiries and philanthropy about the direction we're going, and we're not, we're not the first and only people. They're there are pioneers ahead of us who've been on this front. Um, but the, the, the thing I'm worried about is that people treat it like a programmatic innovation uh, versus really a cultural transformation around beliefs and values. So you just have to reset your mind. You can't be an autocratic unilateral foundation and fully respect the voices of people in community. 
you've got to enter a reciprocal relationship, which means different ways of expecting reporting, different ways of negotiating. Uh, we're, we're building a community advisory right now uh, that we're going to take very seriously to uh, give us and guide us in terms of the things we actually ought to do and the decisions we ought to make. That's a f- uh, fascinating journey to um, to get to the subject of inequity. And I, I mentioned earlier that I've been on a different parallel journey in the last few years studying the future work. And it Having looked hard at the future work, I've come back to this, the topic of inequity, uh, but because of what appears to me to be the inevitable uh, march of inequity brought on by uh, the automation economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm equally worried about inequity in our future. Um, it's interesting that you, you come to it from a set of historical observations about intend uh, about uh, interventions that have been made and what's worked and what what hasn't and um, I guess it, it's interesting that both for historical reasons and for uh, what seems inevitable about our future that uh, coming to terms with race and inequity uh, couldn't be more important. It's true, and I think it's true of every facet of our society. And I'm kind of self conscious of the fact that. You know, we here and I have kind of rediscovered the glue that holds inequity down in our society overall. And it's sort of this interesting, logical thing we do. And I just know that as my own circle of relationships has grown with educators and people of color and people who have different means that, you know, the response is, well, what took you so long? Because, you know, uh, conversations about resource equity are conversations about structural racism. Conversations about innovation and education are conversations about uh, combating uh, institutional and structural racism. They're not just conversations about innovation because the needs we have are so well defined by race and class. I mean, they are the structures that keep our society back. Um, so it is a flipping of a lens. I kind of think of it, you know, being at the optometrist where they flip the lenses up and finally things sort of clarify. And when you slap that racial equity lens down, uh, the mission and the problem uh, just comes into focus more clearly. I thought we could uh, close with your mission. Uh, now that you mention it, um, the new mission for the Nellie May Education Foundation is to champion efforts that prioritize community goals that challenge racial inequity and advance excellent student-centered public education for all New England youth. Yeah. It sells it well. I hope so. You know, executing that mission is a challenge. I'm very, again, self-conscious and, you know, the uh, angst and humility I have about being able to pull that off and do that well uh, is very high. But I think we have the right people organized, especially staff here and the people we're gathering around us to instruct us. I just hope we can live up to that mission. Um, I think it's a good one. I think it's respectful. And I think it's an edge of really authorizing more democratic conversations about the future of education and and really elevating, listening to, and engaging the voices of those with the most at stake, those who've been harmed the most by what we do, and those whose futures on which we all depend. Because we are a interdependent society now. In the days of having a Jeffersonian elite based on Plato's 500, the idea that you could have some you know, excellent people like you and me leading things, uh, I think those days are over. Uh, and I think we need to, you know, we, we're a great democracy. So our I feel like our mission is good for three three reasons. One, uh, it's a 
practical thing to do because it's the route to uh, universal success in our society is making sure that education is an equalizing event of some kind. Uh, it's a, a right thing to do uh, because it enables us to live and really close a gap, a value gap between what people like you and I say we want to do versus what we're really doing. I think it means real opportunity, uh, real equity, real justice for people. And the third thing is, I think it's a patriotic thing to do because it guarantees the future success of our society and it demonstrates around the world what a great democracy does to grow and evolve. And that is to face equity and embrace justice. Thanks for being on the podcast, Nick. Thanks for having me. A big thanks to Nick for joining us for today's episode. We appreciate Nellie May's new mission to challenge racial inequities and advance excellent student-centered public education for all New England youth. And for more on how intentionally designed competency-based learning can promote equity, see episode 177, which outlines equity-focused strategies for policy and practice. Also check out our equity and access topic on gettingsmart.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review today's episode. It helps more people find our podcast and helps us get better. If you have suggestions for a future episode, you can send those over to editor at gettingsmart.com with podcasts in the subject line, and we'll add it to our list. That's it for this week, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Caroline and Jessica signing off.